Elizabeth Brunig, a left-leaning Catholic opinion columnist for the New York Times, wrote a Mother's Day piece that drew praise from a number of quarters. In that column, she describes how becoming a mother at 25, which is young by today's standards, changed her for the better. Her choice was admittedly countercultural, as the current thinking questions the wisdom of not only a 25-year-old being married, but also having children, especially when she was both financially insecure and insecure with her own identity. Yet, she found in her daughter something that drew her outside of herself and forced her to live for another. It is a choice she does not regret. In the column, she discusses the changing demographics of birth rates and makes a case for more governmental help for young parents. For example, she and her husband are able to send their daughters to a good school based on where they live in Washington, D.C., and their financial need. By most standards, then, Brunig's piece was banal. It simultaneously praises young motherhood, even as it advocates for a typical left-of-center political and economic policy. But not everyone saw it this way. There were some on the left who didn't find it nearly progressive enough and attacked Brunig as a privileged, cisgendered, heteronormative woman who is misogynistic, especially in regards to trans women, and was pushing her views of, I quote, white extinction anxiety on the rest of us. As an aside, apparently white extinction anxiety is the fear among white people, that white people are dying out, thus birthing more white people is an imperative. I suppose this makes Brunig a racist too. As one commentator asked, how could such a person write for the New York Times? Never you mind that she was a finalist for a Pulitzer in 2019. She has a master's degree from Cambridge, was at one point working on a PhD at Brown, and was formerly employed for another of this country's liberal flagship newspapers, the Washington Post. I mean, just this Wednesday, she announced her new hiring to The Atlantic. I follow Brunig on Twitter, and it wasn't her piece that caught my attention so much as it was the vitriol, an escalation of hatred towards her in the comments, and they got way worse than what I've mentioned so far. It's one thing to disagree with someone's views or politics. It's quite another to vilify and condemn a person because of your disagreement. Much of the hatred was coming from an author, Jude Ellison S. Doyle, a feminist writer who self-describes as queer, non-binary, and trans. The irony is that Dole, Doyle, excuse me, following the playbook of sexual identity politics, expects all people to affirm her identity as non-binary and trans and thinks a lack of affirmation equates with hatred. And yet Doyle, without hesitation, belittles Brunig's identity and openly mocks her. Without question, this is acceptable to Doyle. No, in fact, in her view, it's the righteous thing to do. She's obligated to speak out. Doyle sees herself as a member of a class of victims. And if you mind her blue check status on Twitter, she only has 43,500 followers versus Brunig's 200,000 plus followers. And Brunig, with her toxic traditionalism, is a threat to things like, I quote, gender-inclusive language or thinking of pregnancy, birth, and parenthood as gender-neutral. 
Doyle assumes she has the right to not just critique Brunig, but to war against what she perceives as an oppressive viewpoint. I've long wrestled with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 and 16. In Matthew 16, Jesus teaches that to confess him with your mouth as the Christ, the Son of the living God, has the real-world consequences of literally taking up a cross and following him. That may or may not result in an actual cross. All the same, Jesus wasn't speaking figuratively. After all, some of his disciples died on crosses for his sake. In Matthew 5, Jesus teaches that his disciples will endure ridicule and persecution for his sake, and in turn, they will not seek vengeance or retaliation. No, instead, they will love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. That's all well and good when the worst you're dealing with is a disgruntled member of PTA who hates that you're a Presbyterian. What happens when you're being trashed in front of an audience that could well reach over a million people? What should we make of passages like Exodus 21 through 22, where self-defense is permitted in the case of assault, robbery, or the protection of the innocent? I mean, clearly Israel living in the promised land as a theocratic people is a bit different from first century Israel living under oppressive Roman occupation. I mean, self-defense is a real possibility in what we would think of as a godly nation like ancient Israel, but under Roman occupation, well, you may very well lose your life. Added to this, what do we make of passages like Proverbs 26, where this seemingly contrarian advice is given? Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, which is it? Should we answer or not? I mean, how can we tell if we are acting like the fool or silencing one? Do we have a right to defend ourselves, or should we, like Jesus modeled before the Sanhedrin, silently endure? Such questions have become more difficult in the digital age. Part of the problem, and really part of the difficulty, is that companies like Twitter or Facebook are, as Brad Edwards recently argued, counterfeit or rival institutions. Institutions, by definition, are both purposefully social and formative. Just think of schools, churches, or businesses. They are intended to shape us and bring about a certain kind of community. We all recognize how a school or a business shapes communities, but we treat institutions like Twitter or Facebook as if they are not institutions, as if they are neutral communication tools, when in reality, in reality they too are institutions that knowingly undermine traditional brick-and-mortar institutions like the church. The church, for example, shapes a community away from itself and towards the triune God. That's what it's supposed to do. It's intended to form in us an outward-facing stance in which we are shaped to and by something outside of us. Traditionally, schools have had a similar charter with the goal of shaping young people for the greater good of their communities and nation. Twitter, in its ilk, shapes us to pursue ourselves and pushes us to find affirmation in our desires, opinions, and self-constructed identities. The push is inward as opposed to outward, and it further reaffirms our desires to be the center of the world and affirmed for it. 
The irony is that institutions like Twitter, in their attempt to form us to a more relativistic posture, you know, you have your truth and I have mine, let's just live and let live, in reality, have not fostered in anything goes mentality at all, but rather a highly moralistic one. In the absence of a transcendent God or the pursuit of something greater than ourselves, America has not become a live and let live culture. It's rapidly becoming aggressively more and more pharisaic. You can think and do whatever you want, just so long as it conforms to my tribe. And you know what? I'm going to police you over that. So go back to Brunig's antagonist, Jude Doyle. Doyle's hatred was occasioned because Brunig does not affirm Doyle's self-conceived identity, her pronoun usage, or lifestyle choices. That doesn't mean that Brunig is against Doyle. I don't believe she is. It's rather that Brunig's column calls into question the goodness of pursuing yourself and advocates for a different lifestyle that is at odds with Doyle's. But this isn't just a blasphemous proposition for trans activists. Christians of all stripes hold this same mentality, even when their politics and beliefs are different. Because we are shaped by the same counterfeit institutions, ordinary Christians are just as infected with a victim mentality or are engulfed in political ideology, or the cultivation of the self, or the drive to be police officers, just as much as a trans activist, on the far left, or a Trumpian Christian nationalist on the far right. It's the air we breathe, and how often do we really pay attention to the air? I mean, think of it this way. You are formed by word and sacrament and corporate worship one hour a week. This is the primary means God has given to his people to be shaped to him. It's why I harp on corporate worship like a broken record. It's that important. How much more are we formed by social media day in and day out? And I don't care if our church offered worship services every single day or always had something going on. No church can compete with the 24-7 presence of a phone. And you know what? It shows. I left Facebook in early 2016. The same vitriol and hatred I see in Doyle, I saw in conservative Christians, in particular with boomers who were the generation of parents of the kids in my youth and college ministries. As a member of Gen X, I'm between the boomers and their millennial children and have sympathies for both. My early use of Facebook began really strictly with curiosity, if not voyeurism. I wanted to see what had happened to old high school and, and college friends and try to find a way to not have to go to a high school reunion. This was roughly, I don't know, 2006 to 2007. And over the following decade, as the platform grew, I thought I could have critical or thoughtful interactions with people or post what I thought were funny one-liners but I quickly devolved and found I couldn't handle watching Christians I know and love spout conspiracy theories or trash other Christians. And in turn, I felt the need to weigh in. You know, Even after my five-year self-imposed banishment from Facebook, my wife will show me public spats between people we know, things that would 
never be said face to face. And I remember myself doing the same things. Because we know people are watching, because we know this is public, we have to snap back. We have to prove our self-righteousness. We have to score our points and defend our identity. In the end, social media makes us all like Doyle. I know, I've, I've been there. And I'm still tempted by it. But now I see the same thing on Twitter among the millennial children of boomers who in reaction to their parents now lean left, if not full out progressive. It's the same snide, dismissive, and condescending attitude conjoined with politics and theology. And as I watch, just like I was watching Sunday night with Brunig's comments, I grow more cynical. The temptation to comment or give a rebuttal or dunk on some post is always present. And yet, I'm reminded of Paul's words from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3-5. through 5. And he's, of course, speaking of a false teacher here. He says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Is this not a good word for our digital age? Is this not a good word to examine ourselves before we answer a fool or a disagreeable neighbor or even an enemy? You know, I think Paul has the right of it, and he puts me on notice every time I go on Twitter. What makes me a fan of Brunig is not her politics. I mean, those things are definitely debatable. It's that she's a Christian and did not really defend herself. She largely allowed others to do that for her, and you know what? Here I sit. Here's what she posted three days after the blow-up. PSA. The whole hullabaloo over my Mother's Day essay is a great object lesson and why you can and should safely ignore Twitter freakouts. They're ridiculous, they don't matter, and they pass in 72 hours max. She's a Christian, I have no doubt of that, and you know what? She's right. More on why she's right next week. Baby, cause here we have been standing for 